The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. We are continuing our study on Reformation theology. I'm glad you're here. Good to see you. I invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in a few moments, I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. I said a few weeks ago that when I think about the Reformation, chills go down my spine because I think about the mighty work of God in history, perhaps the greatest work in the history of the church since the time of the apostles. And if you want to crunch down the Reformation to one thing, if you can narrow it down to one thing, what made this a mighty movement of God, is that it was a rediscovery of the Word of God. It was a rediscovery of the Word of God. And I want to describe that to you tonight through what it was called the Reformation motto of sola scriptura, which is a Latin phrase that means Scripture alone, where the Protestant reformers really used this as a mantra. You know, this wasn't just for the uh, academics. This was the, the layman. Everyone said, sola scriptura, scripture alone is our highest authority because they had come to see scripture for what it really is, which is that it is the word of God. And it alone, they realized, stood for God's authoritative voice in their lives. Imagine living in a world where you have never read a Bible. It's hard for us to even conceive of that world. But that world once existed. Martin Luther didn't even see a Bible until he was 20 years old. And that Bible was written in Latin. And the only reason he could read it is because he was a college student at the University of Erfurt studying Latin. Most people couldn't even access that Bible because they didn't know the language that it was written in. So imagine living in that world where you were cut off from the Word of God. And when you would go to church, the Bible would be read in Latin, a language that you didn't even know. So you don't even, you don't even understand what the, is in the Word except for what the priest might tell you in confession or, or other times. So once people heard the Bible in their native tongue, once people started reading the Bible, it ignited a flame of spiritual fervor in their hearts. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 119.97. He says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Job says in Job 23.12, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion for food. And that's what happened in the Reformation is people encountered God's word and they realized that it tasted good. I told you a couple weeks ago that Ulrich Zwingli in, in Zurich, Switzerland, decided to do something innovative at his church when he became the pastor. He said, I'm going to get rid of the lection lectionary. The lectionary was the homilies that the Catholic church told you that you should preach. They basically gave you canned sermons. He said, I'm going to get rid of it, and I'm going to pick up the New Testament. I'm going to begin with Matthew 1.1, and I'm going to start systematically preaching through the New Testament. And when he did that, people danced in the streets. 
they danced in the streets because they encountered the Word of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the power of the Word of God? Do you believe that the greatest need of the hour is to recover God's Word? Because that is my hope and heart for, for our church, for, for our country, is that God's word would be treasured once again. Not the word of the psychologist or the sociologist, not the word of politicians, certainly not the word of Pope Francis, but what we need to hear today more than anything else is the word of God. And that's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, until I come, devote yourself, Timothy, to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is what we are to do, is we are to devote ourselves to the Word of God in the church. It's very, very simple. It's very simple. The recipe for a healthy church. It's that you lift up the Bible as the sole authority, and then you teach it everywhere that you possibly can. You explain it what its meaning is because and this is what I want you to see the Bible is a living book it is God's very word look at 2nd Timothy 3 verse 16 Paul says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Underline that phrase, breathed out by God. That phrase is one Greek word. It's a compound word, theopneustos. Theo is the word God, and neustos is the word breath. Paul's saying that Scripture is God's breath. It's literally God speaking. When B.B. Warfield described the Bible, he says, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Peter says this. He says, this happened when, um, he says, 2 Peter 1.21, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this happened as the Holy Spirit came upon men and through their own language gave them the, the word of God. Therefore, this word is a living book. Writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I heard a pastor in Texas, Tommy Nelson, say recently, he said, I've been reading the Bible every year since Gerald Ford was the president. And every year I've discovered something new. It's that I don't just read the Bible, the Bible reads me. And every year it's a new book because I'm encountering the Bible as a different person every year. I'm growing and my circumstances change. And, the, and God speaks to me through his word in a unique way every time I read the Bible. It is a living book. And so when you read it, when you study it, the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to instruct, to convict. As Paul says, if you look, look at, the, at, the, uh, at verse 16, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And then look at verse 17. This is so that, this is the purpose clause. This is, this is why Scripture is given, and this is very important for our discussion tonight. He says, so that the man of God may be complete. Uh, the Greek word is artios. It means to be fulfilled, to, to come to this state of completion. And, and here's what I want you to see, what Paul's saying. For you to become a sanctified Christian... For you to become complete, Paul says, all that you need is the Word of God. Next phrase, 
equipped for every good work. That word equipped is describing, you could use it to describe, you remember on the Oregon Trail, you ever play that game, uh, where right when you start, you go into the store and you buy everything that you need to, to take the trail out west. You equip your wagons with the, the ammo, the, the wheat, and, and the extra wheel for your wagon, all of that, but you equip yourself so you're ready for the, uh, the journey. And that's what this word describes. He says, Scripture equips you for, for the journey of life. Everything that you're going to face in life, you are equipped and readied for that through the Word of God. So let me ask you, do you need anything else for your sanctification and growth and grace outside of the Word of God? No, you do not. No, you do not. A few years ago, there was this movement within evangelicalism called the social justice movement. And basically what the social justice movement said is that you need to understand justice in terms of this tool of intersectionality. And you need to understand that there's uh, groups, minority groups that have been oppressed, and you need to understand justice this way. And all these people Christians begin to say, yes, we need to, to understand the biblical view of justice, but we also need to understand this view of justice because this is a tool that helps us understand how to live just, justly in this world. I'm not kidding. And, and what I was saying during that period is I was saying, all that you need is in the Word of God. And if you're holding this up as the extra plus, it's not right because all that you need for sanctification and godliness is found right here in Scripture. So there's always these temptations that come along to add criteria, to-do list, all those sorts of things to the Word of God. And that's what happened during the Reformation is the, the Catholic Church had added all these things all these to-do lists, all these doctrines, all these traditions to God's Word, and in so doing, they had lost God's Word. So tonight, I'm going to give you two lists. So if you're taking notes, I'm going to give you two lists. And the, the first list is the problem of Roman Catholicism in Scripture. How did the church essentially lose the Bible? That's the question. You know, essentially, when the Reformation started, the Bible had been lost. How did that happen? I'm going to tell you how. First, the problem of tradition. The problem of tradition. Uh, the, a tradition is a practice or teaching which is handed down. It's something that is received. When I was at Texas A&M, Texas A&M is big on tradition. And I was in the Corps of Cadets at, at Texas A&M, which is called the Keepers of the Spirit. And the idea is this, is that the, the same things that the cadets did 100 years ago, you still do those today. And these traditions are passed down. And then when I was a junior or senior, I became a yell leader at A&M. And we did these yells that, people, that the yell leaders had been doing with the student body for over 100 years. We did the same exact yells. We didn't change them. In fact, we thought it was basically Aggie heresy to change it because they are traditions. So a tradition is something that's handed down. Now, traditions can be good things, right? It's good to have family traditions. It's good to have all sorts of traditions. Um, traditions are, can be good and right. In fact, Paul says, jot down this verse, 1 Corinthians 11, 2, Paul says, now I command you, be, uh, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul tells the Corinthians, I commend you because you remember and maintain the right traditions. Now, in the church, there is a right way to think about tradition. There is a right way to think about, the, about tradition. 
there is a tradition of the right interpretation of Scripture. In the first few centuries, heretics would come along, and they would basically say, I can believe that Jesus is not a God, but someone like God. I can interpret Scripture the way that I want to interpret Scripture. And one of the things that the church fathers would say to that, somebody who denies the deity of Christ, is they would say, you are outside of the traditional interpretation of Scripture. And if you want to know what the traditional interpretation of Scripture is, you, you understand the big articles of the faith that were outlined, for example, in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And whenever the, the early fathers would encounter these heretics, they would say, you are outside of the tradition. But the way that they understood that tradition was essentially the teaching of the church on what Scripture taught, but that teaching was underneath Scripture itself. And we would say the same today. Somebody comes and denies the doctrine of the Trinity, for example. What would we say? Well, we would say you're a heretic because you are outside the tradition of what the church has taught about the deity of Christ, the deity of the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years. Now, here's where things went awry in the Roman Catholic Church. They said, yes, God has spoken and inspired the Word of God. This is God's Word. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is inspired. That's what Rome teaches. But they said, guess what else? God has also inspired the tradition. God has given us other traditions. These traditions were passed down from Peter and Paul and the apostles, but they were enshrined as the tradition through the church councils. So when the church councils would meet and the church councils would make a statement, they would say that that also is inspired by the Holy Spirit in the same way as Scripture itself. Moreover, they said when the Pope speaks, because he's the vicar of Rome, he is in the line of the apostles, when the Pope speaks what's called ex cathedra, not just when he's you know talking to to a cardinal or something, but when he speaks officially on behalf of the church, it is inspired. It is on the same level of Scripture. So I was listening. Does anybody uh, check out Mike Schmitz? He does the, the Catholic Catechism podcast. I was listening to Mike Schmitz on this, and, and Mike Schmitz says this, and this is a direct quote. He said, Catholics are not people of the book, end quote. He says, we believe that the Holy Spirit has inspired more than the Bible. The Holy Spirit has also inspired the tradition. And so they look at the Catholic catechism, and, and this is almost a direct quote, I meet with God through the Catholic catechism. Now, we use catechisms, but as tools to say this is what we believe the Scripture teaches, they use the catechism as saying this is the inspired tradition that God has given, that God has encountered. And he says Protestants have one authority, Scripture. He says we have a three-legged stool. Ooh, we have Scripture, we have the sacred tradition, and then we have the, the word from the Pope. And he says, you know, a stool is nice to sit on. It's sturdy. And, it, you know, I guess we Protestants only have a pogo stick, you know. But, but here's the problem, and this is the problem, and this was the problem, is what happens when the tradition contradicts the Scripture, and what happens when the Pope contradicts the tradition and the Scriptures? How do you mediate that? How do you arbitrate that? And that's exactly what the Reformers said. As they said, there is a problem here. 
Because what you are saying, Pope Leo, what the councils are saying, contradicts what is directly stated in the Word of God. So that's the problem of tradition. Second problem that happened, and that is the problem of their Bible. The Bible that they used was the Latin Vulgate. Who here went with us to Israel uh, earlier this summer? Uh, show of hands. There, there's, there's a few of y'all here. Okay, great. Y'all remember when we were there in Bethlehem, we went to the, the church of uh, the Nativity. Y'all remember this. And we went down to the basement of the church of the Nativity where there's a cave. And in that cave, a guy named Jerome uh, took the best text that he could at the time and he translated the, the Latin, the Greek, sorry, the Greek, the Hebrew, he translated those texts into Latin. And that version of the Bible was called the Vulgate. And it was a marvelous feat. Uh, he literally kept a skull on his desk to remind himself of his own mortality and that time is short. It's pretty Pretty good discipline, what do you think? Um, but he, remarkable feat, translates the, the Bible uh, into Latin, and this became the Bible for the church for a thousand years. They didn't improve it. Uh, they didn't uh, get anything different. They used this Bible for a long time. When Jerome did this, the Roman Empire was still in place. So naturally, people still spoke Latin. So people could read it. But what happened over time? Rome fell, the barbarian hordes came down, and everybody starts speaking German or a different pagan language, right? The people, except unless you were an educated person, you didn't know Latin. So First, that was a problem. Most people stopped speaking Latin. The other problem with the Latin translation is that Jerome, for as well as he did, he mistranslated some words. And let me give you a few examples. One word that he mistranslated is the word where we get our English word justification. Justification. The Greek word is dikaio, dikaio suni. And he translated that word into Latin, Latin word justificare, which is almost exactly where we get our word justification. Now let me explain to you why that's a mistranslation. He took the word justus or, or justice and he added the verb, Latin verb. I'm doing Latin with my kids right now. So refresher for me. But facio facire is the Latin word, verb, for do or make. Okay? So he takes that verb and he adds it to the word justice. You see the problem there? It, it means the way he translates it, you do justice. That's what justification is. You do righteousness. And from that, the Catholic Church came up with this whole idea that you are justif justified on the basis of an infused righteousness, that you must become righteous in order to be justified, that you must become to, to this place of perfection in order for God to allow you into heaven. And that's why they invent this whole doctrine of purgatory, why they emphasize good works in order to be justified before God. It was based on a mistranslation of the word. Another word that Jerome mistranslated is the Greek word metanoia. What does the word metanoia mean? Repentance. Good. Good. Noia means mind. Meta, the preposition at the beginning means transform. Literally, in Greek, transform your mind, change your mind. Now, the, the way that Jerome translated that word is, the, the Latin word he used was penitentia, 
which doesn't mean change your mind. It means be contrite or do penance. It didn't mean change your mind about who God is. Change your mind about what the gospel means. Change your mind about your sin. That's not what it means. It means be contrite about your sin. So the Catholic Church built this whole idea of doing penance after your confession. You know, oh, I've, I've sinned, I've, I've, I've done, I've lied, priest. You know, go do, uh, uh, go say a hundred our fathers or go do a hundred Hail Marys. You know, go, go do penance. And, and what it was, the, the thing that's wrong with that, and, and I'm sure you, you see it immediately, is that it was focused on you facing sin without going to Christ. In order to deal with sin, you must go to Christ. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You don't get rid of your sin by being contrite over your sin. You get rid of your sin by going to Christ. You see the difference? So those were the problems with the Vulgate. One, nobody knew it, nobody could read it, and two, it mistranslated key words which ended up causing serious doctrinal error. Third problem that the Roman Catholic Church had is that they had the wrong Bible, the problem of the canon, the problem of the canon. Now, the word canon means the rule or the norm. And what uh, Jerome did when he translated the, the Latin Vulgate is he took the Greek Septuagint, and he, he used that to help in translation. And what the, what the Greek Septuagint had done, what the, the, the 70 who had interpreted the, the Septuagint, is they had included, along with the Old Testament, what they call the intertestamental writings, what we know today as the Apocrypha. So those were included in the Septuagint. I know this is high, but stay with me, okay? Those were then included in the Latin Vulgate, and uh, those books that I'm talking about, have, have you all ever heard of First and Second Maccabees, uh, the Book of Tobit, uh, Sirach, Book of uh, Wisdom, you know, all these, all these what they call apocryphal books. Here's the thing, uh, none of them are quoted in the New Testament as Scripture, None of them were originally part of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, they don't even claim, the writers of the, of the apocryphal books don't even claim to be writing Scripture. So yes, they're helpful for understanding Judaism in the second temple, but they aren't the Word of God. And so they shouldn't be included in the Word of God. So you ask, why is this a problem well, one, if, if you have books that are added onto the Bible, then, then you have misplaced authority. But two, it became a problem. Do you remember I told you a few weeks ago how the Catholic Church had come up with this whole idea of purgatory? They just made it up. Made it up. And purgatory was a place where your soul went when you died so that you could essentially be cleansed of your sin. And most people would go there, unless you were a super saint. Unless you were a super saint, you would go to purgatory where you would pay for your sins, and, or somebody would, you would wait there until somebody would buy you an indulgence, would get, which would give you a dispensation of grace, which would get you up and out into heaven. And Luther and the other Protestants started to say, where are you coming up with this idea of purgatory? It's not in the Bible. And they would say, ah, in 2 Maccabees, there is a verse about praying for the dead. So why would we need to pray for the dead if they're in heaven? 
Because the dead, they're, they're in purgatory. They need your prayers. They need to get up and out. There is a purgatory. So do you see why this is a problem? The wrong scripture, the wrong canon, yields the wrong results. By the way, one time I was, I had all these you know, friends at, at A&M, and, and whenever I would go to their weddings, they would always ask me to do the scripture readings. And uh, the, I, I had a Catholic friend, uh, you know, married a Catholic girl. They asked me to do the scripture reading. I said, sure. I show up at the church, and the reading was from the book of Tobit, <laughs> not Bible. And so go through the, uh, the rehearsal Friday night before. Priest says, make sure when you're done reading, say, this is the word of the Lord. I looked at him. I said, I am a Protestant. <laughs> I will read it, but I will not say it. And I didn't. I read it, read from the book of Tobit. There's some section on marriage, but I did not say when I was done with the reading, this is the word of the Lord. And neither should you because it's not inspired. All right, fourth, fourth problem. Fourth problem is the problem of interpretation. All right, so not only does the church hold up tradition, which contradicts Scripture and word from the Pope, not only do they have a Bible that nobody really knows, not only do they have the wrong Bible, but they also said only the Pope and a select few people have the right to interpret the Bible. So you, Joe Smuckatelli, you know, you're reading Galatians. You say, you read that man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. You read that. You bring it to your priest. You say, I have a problem with you saying that we're justified by faith in works. You know what the priest says? You don't have the authority to interpret Scripture. Scripture's already been interpreted for you. The Pope's done it. The Cardinals have done it. The tradition has done it. So you don't have a leg to stand on. It doesn't really matter what you think Scripture says because you don't have the authority in and of yourself to interpret the Word of God. And there were all sorts of issues with how the, 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 there was all this scholastic means of interpretation where often instead of interpreting the Scripture plainly and in the way that the writer would have intended themselves to be interpreted, they would interpret it allegorically. There were lots of problems with how people were interpreting the Scriptures, and again, they're reading the Latin text, not the original Greek and Hebrew. So through all of this, the Bible was lost. The Bible was lost. And this is how God brought about its recovery. So, second list. Y'all ready for the second list? How Luther, and it's not just Luther, but we're going to focus tonight on Luther. How Luther recovered the Scriptures. How Sola Scriptura came about. Now, Luther was born, you can write down these dates, November 10th, 1483. So he's born, he's a medieval person. His father was a miner and, and pretty wealthy person, his father named Hans Luther. And his father had ambitions for Luther and paid to send him to the University of Erfurt to become a lawyer. So he shows up at the University of Erfurt, 1501-1505, and basically he studies Latin. He, he, he reads uh, basically a classical education. Really, God was preparing him to become a theologian uh, through his study of the law and Latin, church fathers. Uh, he was a, a very brilliant person. 1505, he's riding on a horse, 
and a storm rolls up. And big thunderstorm. I don't know if you've ever been in a big thunderstorm where lightnings come. I've been in a thunderstorm, you know, in the, in the Marine Corps. You can't go just get under a building where everybody's down in a ditch, you know, and you're you're praying that you, you don't get struck by lightning. Well, Luther encountered a storm like that, and in the middle of that storm, you know, think about this. He's 22 years old. He makes a vow. And he says, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. So he doesn't pray to God, he prays to St. Anne. And he says, help me, and if you get me out of this, I will become a monk. And he lived. And so, true to his vow, he went to an Augustinian monastery and he became a monk. And if you think about this, what this tells us about Luther is that Luther was a man afraid of God. He was afraid to die. In that moment, he had an existential angst in his soul. And he said, I am not ready to face God. And in this time and place, you know, again, think about this. He's not reading, studying the Bible. If you want to prepare to face God, most people thought that you had to become a super-Christian. The only way to become a super-Christian was by joining a monastery or a convent where you would take vows of celibacy, a vow of poverty, and, and a, you know, a vow of, of, uh, of studying. And um, the, the idea was that you would purge yourself of sin. It wasn't looking at Christ you know, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that the, the path to sanctification is to gaze at Christ with unveiled face. That's not what this was. It was introspective. It was you pull yourself up by your boot, bootstraps, you purge yourself, you live a holy life, you chastise yourself when you lust, when, when you have desires for carnal things, you crucify yourself. That's what this was. You ever seen those um, pictures of priests who would take off their shirts and self-flagellate and whip themselves? Luther would do that. Basically starve himself because he wanted so bad to be right with God. Now here's something that was unique about Luther. Uh, when he was 22 years old, he was in a library and he found a Latin Bible. This is the providence of God. And let me give you a quote. This is a direct quote from Luther. He said, when I was 20 years old, I had not yet seen a Bible. I thought that there were no gospels and epistles except those which were written in the Sunday postals. Finally, I found a Bible in the library, and forthwith, I took it with me into the monastery. I began to read, to reread, and to read it over and over again to the great astonishment of Stoppitz. That was the person that was over the monastery. I'm sure the astonishment of everyone. God was doing something in his heart. But he was still in this existential angst. The German word, this is an interesting word, and Luther would use it throughout his life to describe this period. It's onfectung, onfectung, A-N-F-E-C-H-T-U-N-G. And translated into English, it means dread, despair, anxiety. And, and Luther was troubled in his soul because he focused on the righteousness and holiness of God and his own attempts to purge himself of his own sin. And he, and he always knew, he always realized that he, compared to God, was unholy, was a sinful person and deserving of God's judgment. And so he had this angst in the soul. When he was ordained, the first time that he served the Mass, you know, his father was very disappointed that he had joined the monastery. 
And when he was ordained, his father really hadn't had much to do with him, but his father showed up. And when it came time for Luther to serve the Mass, he blessed the elements. And then when he took up the, the bread, which he believed to be the literal body of Christ, he couldn't speak anymore. He was so terrified. And then he just put it down and ran out of the room. Everybody's just left there standing, you know, mouth agape. So Luther was essentially in this state of failure. And, and what he would do is he would go into the, the confessional booth, and the, the, his confessor, the guy who was over the monastery that he was at, was named um, John von Stoppitz. And Luther would confess his innermost thoughts. They weren't even, they, they weren't actually committed sins. They were sins of the heart. He was so introspective. And he would doubt even his doubts. And so Stoppitz would spend hours with Luther in the confessional. And finally he just said, Luther, come back to me when you've committed adultery or fornication or done something substantial because you're just wasting everyone's time. But that was the angst he was in before God uh, in his own sin. And so what do you do with a person that's going spiritually crazy? What do you do with a person like that? What Stoppitz, this is Stoppitz's idea. He said, Luther, you need to go get a doctorate in biblical studies. I still think it's the same strategy today. You know, somebody's going crazy. What do you do with that guy? Go get a PhD in biblical studies. Um, but uh, that leads to the, the first thing that was involved in the recovery of the Bible, and that is the study of the Word of God. The study of the Word of God. Luther took up the study of Hebrew. Now he began studying Hebrew, and he took it up with a vengeance. And when Luther was reading the Bible, when he was studying the Bible, he wasn't studying the Bible as an academic. That's always my fear when somebody goes to seminary or somebody goes to study the Bible in an official capacity, is that they will study the Bible as if they are over the Bible. That's not how Luther did it. That's not how Luther did it. Luther studied the Bible hanging on every word, where he was studying the Bible because he was thinking, in this is the path to heaven. Think about if, if somebody were to give you a treasure map. You, you would treat that treasure map with the utmost respect. You wouldn't want to lose it. You wouldn't want to deface it. And, and you would keep it because that treasure map is the path to, to wealth. And that's how Luther read and studied the Bible, as the path to glory. Let me give you one quote from a historian. He said, quote, Professor Luther was not just a scholar engaging with an ancient text on a purely intellectual level. He was a servant of God who was trying to engage with God's Word existentially to bring himself and others to eternal salvation. Listen to this. Everything was writing on each and every one of those words he analyzed in God's book, literally as well as figuratively. It reminded me reading that of what Jesus said to Satan. Man cannot live on bread alone, but on the very word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every single word. And that's how Luther looked at the Bible, is he treasured every word. And he began lecturing on Psalms, then Romans, then Galatians. 1516, Erasmus released the Greek New Testament, so he began studying the original Greek manuscripts. And his life was changed. When you study God's Word deeply, down to the sentences, the phrases, the syntax. When you study God's word like that, 
worlds change. You want to change the world. Get in this book. Get in the book. Change your life. Get in the book. It'll change you. It'll change churches. It'll change countries. It's changed the world. And it changed Luther, and through Luther, changed Germany, changed Germany, it changed Europe. Puritans brought it to this country, and it's gone forth throughout the world. So that's first, study the word. Second, converted through the word. Conversion in the gospel comes through the word of God. Remember, Luther was troubled in his soul with this question, how could God forgive sinners? How could God declare a sinner righteous who was in fact unrighteous? And this was the problem that racked his, ba- racked his brain. This was the problem that, that caused so much angst in his soul. And one afternoon, he was in the library, which happened to be in a tower. And he had what is called his tower moment. Have you ever had a tower moment studying the Word of God where something changed, where a light bulb goes off, where your life is never the same again? And his tower moment came reading Romans. I want you to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Verse 16, Luther was reading this, meditating on this, and he read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Gospel means good news, euangelion. He says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, here's the verse that got Luther For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. There's that word. You remember that word we talked about earlier that was translated justificare in the Latin Vulgate, but in the Greek New Testament is dikaio, suni, which which means a declared righteousness that God gives, a, a righteousness that God gives as a gift. And he says, he, he, look at, he looked at this phrase, that this righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And in reading that verse, Luther realized that the righteousness that God is talking about here is a righteousness that wasn't his own, but a righteousness that was given as a gift through faith. That was his eureka moment. Let me give you a quote from Luther. Quote, Then I begin to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, that is, by faith, and that the gospel reveals that a merciful God justifies us by faith with a passive righteousness. As it is written, the righteous shall live faith through faith. This made me feel as if I had been born again and passed through open doors into paradise itself. All of Scripture appeared different to me now, and I then began to love that term I used to hate, the righteousness of God. I loved it as the sweetest of all. Thus, Paul truly became my gateway to paradise, end quote. So the word of God was used to convert him. And that's how all conversion happens. That's how all conversion happens. Peter says this, jot down this verse, 1 Peter 1.23. He says, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing, in hearing by the word of Christ. 
So the way that somebody is converted, the way that somebody is born again is only through the reading and hearing of the Word of God. Let me repeat that. The way that somebody is converted is only by reading and hearing the Word of God. So what happens if you conceal the Word of God in your programmatic and on Easter, you're having a hot air balloon, and you know some guy saying Jesus loves you. Raise your hand if you make a decision. Is anybody actually converted? There has to be the word of God. You're not born again by raising a hand. You're born again through the word of God. This is something that, you know, Augustine, St. Augustine was uh, sitting in a garden, and he heard a voice, somebody say, take up and read, and he picked up the Bible that was next to him. He just opened it up. You ever play that game where you just, you know, Bible roulette? He, he just opened it up, uh, and he opened his Bible to Romans chapter 13, verse 13, where Paul says, let us walk, walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to justify its desires. He read those verses and he was born again. I, I once heard R.C. Sproul say he came back to the dorm when he was in college and there were two guys having a Bible study in the, the foyer, the lobby of the dorm, and they read a verse from Ecclesiastes that, the, the, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, uh, when a tree falls, there it lies. He said, I heard that verse, and I was converted because I realized I was like that dead tree, lifeless, spiritually lifeless. Luther realized that conversion happens only through the Word, only through the Word, and we've lost that. It's not gimmicks. It, it can, in fact, gimmicks give you false results. They work against you. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of perishable through the living and abiding word of God. So that was two. That conversion happens only through the word of God. Uh, if you think about the Catholic experience, why is that a problem? Because people didn't encounter the word of God. They encountered the church and its sacraments. And that's why so many people were unconverted. Okay. Third, Luther understood the authority of the word, sola scriptura. Luther then understood that the word of God is over all other authorities. Yes, there's other authorities, but those other authorities are under God's word. He discovered this principle, the Protestant principle of sola scriptura. Let me tell you how this happened. After he nailed the 95 theses to the castle church at, uh, there in Wittenberg, that was October 31st, 1517, he had all sorts of critics. Uh, the printing press was, had been uh, invented. Who invented the printing press, y'all remember? Johann Gutenberg. So the printing press had been invented, and all sorts of people started using it and writing tracts. So when Luther came out with the, the, uh, the 95 Theses, people who agreed with Luther started making tracts and sending them out all over. Well, Catholics started doing the same thing. Catholics started to arguing against Luther. And, and one of the, the prominent track writers that, that started writing tracts against Luther and against the, the Protestant cause was another German named Johann Eck. And he, uh, Eck was a brilliant Catholic theologian in his own right. And he challenged Luther and some of the other guys in Wittenberg to a debate. And um, the, the debate was held in a town called Leipzig. And basically at this debate, I mean, th this, is, this is raw stuff. 
uh, everybody marched to the debate with swords and pitchforks because they were afraid. They, the Protestants were afraid that they'd be attacked by the Catholics. The Catholics were afraid they'd be attacked. I mean, this was serious. And they showed up at the debate. The debate went 15, 16 days. This is no joke. And one of the first things that Luther and Eck debated was the question of papal authority. The question was, who gives the pope his authority? Is it God or is it man? Putting things right on the line. Luther said, it's man. It's not God. God hasn't given the pope this authority. Uh, man has, has propped up the, the, the pope. Uh, the, the papacy is a, a human institution, not a divine institution. So Eck immediately then accused Luther of being a heretic. He says, you're saying the same thing as Jan Hus. You're saying the same things as John Wycliffe. And uh, those guys, you know, Hus was burned at the stake at the Council of Constance. So you agree with him, you're a heretic. And this is what Luther said in response. This is what he said to the crowd. I mean, Luther, didn't, Luther at this point is going all in. He doesn't really care at this point. He says, quote, no believing Christian can be coerced beyond Holy Scripture. By divine law, we are forbidden to believe anything which is not established by divine Scripture or manifest revelation. I assert that a council has sometimes erred and may sometimes err, nor has a council authority to establish new articles of faith. Now listen to this. A simple layman armed with Scripture is to, be be, is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. A simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. I believe that. And if Pope Francis were here, I would tell him that. Jeff? You right there with your open Bible, you have more authority than the Pope. You do. We all do. Because, and it's not your authority. It's the authority of the Word of God. It's not, a, it's not man's authority. It's the, the, the authority of the Word. That, that this Word is authoritative. That what this Word says is what we are to do. And, and I, I think that's another area that as Protestants, we need to probe our own practice and hearts. Do we hold up Scripture as not just God's suggestion, but God's Word, which is authoritative over our lives? A couple years later, after the Leipzig debate, uh, Luther was brought before the, the emperor of, of the... Um, uh, of the Holy Roman Empire. Luther's brought before the, empire, uh, brought before the emperor, and, and this was called the Diet of Worms, and Luther was told to recant his positions. And this is what he said. He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. So with Luther, that's a famous quote, here I stand. With Luther, here we stand. We stand on the authority of God's word, and I'm taking it to the bank. Fourth thing that Luther discovered is the power of the Word of God. The power of the Word of God. And, and what happened is as they started preaching the Bible, and as they started writing these tracts, Luther wrote a tract on the gospel called On Christian Freedom in 1520, which he essentially unpacked 
the, his understanding of justification by faith, is that people's lives were changed and people began to be converted. And people realized that, is, people realized that the power was in the Word of God. It wasn't in the Catholic Church. It wasn't in the Mass. It wasn't in all the sacraments. The power was in the Word. And the, and the Word of God was changing people's lives. And so what they quickly did is they pulled the mass from being the center of the worship and they placed the reading and preaching of God's word at the center of the worship service. And rather than teaching the, the priests, they didn't call them priests anymore, they started calling them pastors, but rather than teaching the pastors how to, quote, serve the mass and say the prayers, they gave them Bibles and said, now your job is to teach this and preach the word of God. Get rid of the vestments and take up your Bible and teach it and preach it. And the center of, uh, and the Bible became, and the pulpit became the center of the worship. The modern church has begun to replace that with music because they've said the emotive experience with the lights off and the, and the crazy lights, the emotive experience is what the worship is about. No, 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 no. The Word of God is what the worship is about. And your emotion will follow the Word. People think if we base the worship on the Word of God, people will get bored, people will leave, people will run out. No, 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 no. The affections are awakened through the Word of God. And that's what they understood. Uh, when Luther was talking about, somebody asked, you know, how did you do the Reformation? How did this whole thing start? Uh, Luther, and, and Luther was somewhat of a crass individual. You know, he was on this road of sanctification. He said, uh, Philip Melanchthon and I just stayed there in Wittenberg and drank our Wittenberg beer. And he said, the word did everything. I did nothing. The word did everything. I did nothing. I think about that on Sunday mornings. The word does everything. I do nothing. The power is in the Word of God. That was fourth. Fifth and finally, is the clarity of the Word of God. They believed that the Word of God is sufficiently clear to understand. So 1521, remember I told you that Luther stood at the Diet of Worms, the Holy Roman Emperor, asked him to recant. He didn't. Uh, he leaves that meeting, and his protector, who was called Frederick the Wise, he knew that Luther would probably be killed if he didn't do something. And so what he did is he arranged for a group of knights to take Luther hostage. And he said, you take Luther somewhere where, I, where even I don't know where he is. So if somebody asks me, I, I'm I'll be innocent. I won't even know. So Luther leaves the Diet of Worms, and these knights come on the path. You know, imagine these guys, you know, put a, put a sack over his head or something. They pull him away, and they take him to a castle called the Wartburg Castle. And there Luther went incognito. Nobody knows what has happened to him. Some people think he's died. Some people think he's been, you know, taken captive by the Catholics. Nobody really knows where he is. And he goes in disguise as a knight. He gets rid of his, you know, his, his friar clothes, grows out his beard, starts wearing chain armor around, and, and people start calling him George. You know, the history books call him Junker George. You know, he, he starts wearing a sword, looks like a knight. And what he did when he was at the Wartburg Castle, he redeemed the time. He redeemed the time, and he went up in a room in that castle, and he took that New Testament that Erasmus had, had translated. He took that New Testament, and in 11 weeks, he translated the entire thing into German. Translated the entire thing into German, and it was a beautiful translation, a wonderful translation. And with the printing press, bam, they sent it out all over Germany. And now the cat was out of the bag. Now people had the Bible in their homes 
in the language that they could read. And in so doing, Luther accomplished two things, two important things, two vitally important things. Now, you weren't dependent upon a priest to tell you what was in this book. Now you had it for yourself. So he undercut the whole priestly system. And two, now you had the word of God by which to grow and by which to be sanctified yourself. So it was a massive and wonderful endeavor. And William Tyndale heard about what Luther had done and also a brilliant scholar. Tyndale said, I'm going to do the same thing. And he translated it into English. And that's why we are sitting here today with Bibles in our laps. And it started there in the Wartburg Castle with Luther in his Greek New Testament. Once he thought he saw the devil and he threw the inkwell against the wall. But he finished it, finished translating, and the Bible was unleashed. And that's what Protestantism is. That's what this church is. Unleashing the Word of God. You want to change the world? You study the Word and you unleash the Word. That's Protestantism. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the recovery of the Word of God and its truth. It's truth, which is a gateway to heaven itself, the truth of the gospel. That man is justified apart from works through faith of the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for its authority in our lives. It is to us better than honey. To us, it is better than food. It is what we live on. It is our spiritual life. Thank you, Lord, for giving us Bibles in the English tongue. Thank you, Lord, for a personal Bible. Thank you, Lord, that we are part of a church that teaches and preaches the Bible. We pray, Lord, that this book would be unleashed in our land and people would tremble once again at its very word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.